My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I need to tell you, I love books. I really love books. If uh, you go to my office, you will see that I love books. I read books. I read about a book a week. Nothing compared to you, Bill. Uh, but I've got some really good books to share with you that I've read. And uh, really fascinating things you can learn through books. I remember this as a kid. Mom, you know, I'd read books. I'd stay awake with the flashlight and I'd under the covers. And I would read. I loved all kinds of books. We were with our boys at the library, I think, God for my wife. She loves to take the boys to the library, so they read all the time, too. We were looking at Hardy Boys. I go, I've got Hardy Boys from back in the day, and, you know, we're a reading family. I, I love to read books about theology and discipleship. I love to read biographies, uh, science fiction. I love to read all kinds of things. I'm not so much on novels and such. I, I'm more into, you know, history and, and whatever, but I enjoy that, and I believe this. In fact, I was taught this in college that leaders are readers, and if you're ever going to grow, you need to grow and you need to learn through books. Uh, these days, everybody listens to podcasts. Podcasts are great, but books, there's something special about books. And what we can learn through books can change our lives. Now, for me, a book that changed my life, my mom, right, sitting right there, gave me this book uh, 31 plus years ago. And it was this little book right here. It's a Daily Walk Bible. And this is the actual one, and it is a living uh, Bible, the old Ken Taylor uh, paraphrase, and I started reading the Bible, and it's just simple Genesis to Revelation every year. And as I read through the Bible in my 31st year, we've shared about that, we talk about that, want everybody reading the Bible, I began to discover over time some similarities between the beginning of the book and the end of the book. And so a couple years ago, I posted on Facebook. I said, hey, here's some, basically some thoughts I've had as you look at the first couple chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then you get to the end of the book, Revelation 20, 21, and 22, I have seen some very fascinating uh, juxtaposition of events uh, that we live in the middle of. And when you think about it, I think about it from the term of bookmarks or bookends. Uh, I, I have a lot of bookends because I like books. These are my favorite. Uh, I don't know if any of you have been around for years, but a, a gentleman named Doug Wetter used to come to Sunrise. He's passed away now. But Doug was the principal owner of this building, Toshiba. And uh, he was constantly trying me to get us to buy this, to work it out, because he had a vision better than I had for this place. And uh, Doug was uh, just a great mover and shaker for us, and, and he passed away, but in that, he gave me these. And these are some African warrior 
bookends. I've got a lot of bookends. I'm working on building some Han Solo and Carbonite bookends because that'd be cool too. I've got giraffes. I've got elephants. I've got world maps and globes and things like that. But these are my favorite bookends because they represent what God did even though I couldn't see it through a, a wonderful man. And, um, and when I think about bookends and I think about the Bible, I think about the bookends of the Bible. I think about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then Revelation 20, 21, and 22. So I threw this post up on Facebook and I said, here are 10 things that I've seen. And so I decided to, you know, put them together in a message because a friend of mine, actually a couple friends, Arliss Mitchell and uh, Marilyn Johnson said, you ought to put that into a sermon. And I decided to do it this week and Arliss moved two weeks ago to... Arizona, and Maryland is at the coast this weekend. So thank you, ladies. Um, you're not here. Uh, so the rest of you will get it. But I think about this. We even use the terminology of bookends to talk about the bookends of life, right? The beginning and end, the life and death. You and I live within the bookends. And the Bible, 66 books, all one story is lived within the bookends. And as we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, And as we read Revelation 20, 21, and 22, I see this wonderful coming together of all things. I see the struggle that we face. I see the issues that are the most pressing on our hearts. And I see the hope. And so my encouragement as we go through these is to think about how God has a plan Bible says that God is sovereign. Sovereign simply means he's large and in charge. He's he's the king, right? He has all knowledge. He knows what's going to happen. And when you and I are fluttering around in our day, when we're panicking in moments, when things aren't working well, when life just seems, you know, all askew, uh, God doesn't panic. We've never freaked God out by one of our things, right? Have you ever thought about that? We freak each other out. We panic each other. But God's never panicked because God knows the beginning and the end. He's already written the pages of our lives. We just live those pages every day. And so what I want to do today is I want to encourage you uh, through these seven, I've reduced it to seven uh, bookends, and um, I want to remind you of the hope that we have. And so if you didn't pick up one of those sermon notes, you might want to scribble some notes, but I would encourage you just to grab them on the way out the door, okay? So super topical, seven points, like I said, we're going to go through this. And I want to encourage you today by what God has written in the first three and the last three chapters so that we would walk out of here as people with a purpose, people with hope, people reminded of a God who loves us and knows us through his son, Jesus Christ. So I want to go into this. I want to just kind of walk through it. And I just want to share the first one. Bookend of the Bible number one. God's creative power. We read in the very first words, the very first verse, you open any Bible, it always starts the same way. Even the super creative paraphrase message types, it's always the same, right? It's in the beginning. So at some point, countless number of days, years, eons ago, whatever, God created the heavens and the earth. You are not an accident. You are not the result of some primordial soup or some ooze or some evolutionary biology, you know, kind of process that you were one day a plant and now you're something else that's living and breathing. Maybe you're not feeling like living, breathing. Maybe you're feeling more plant-like today, but you're not that. You're not related to a tree. You're not related to an orangutan. You know, you, you have some relatives that maybe, you know, but I mean, you're not, right? 
You are made in the image of God and you were created to know and love God, the God called the creator God. Sometime in the infinite past, God stepped into our world and he spoke everything into being. God with his amazing power. When you see the Hubble Space Telescope photos, when you see what we have been able to see from untold numbers of years ago finally hitting us with the light of those stars and the beauty and the power of that, there's a God bigger than that. And our God stepped into our world, created our existence, and he spoke it into being. And in the beginning, God created it. To think that everything we can see around us is a result of this powerful God, he's unbelievably powerful. But you know, if you go to the end of the book, you see in Revelation these words, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. Now the Bible says that just as God created, he will one day recreate. In fact, Peter describes that God will reduce everything to the very atoms. He will, through fire, destroy everything. This world is cursed and broken. We'll see a lot of that in, in, a, in a bit. But God will recreate everything. Everything that's broken will be made whole, be made new. That God will take what he did and what we have plundered and destroyed and he will restore it to all of its beauty. You know, don't get discouraged. In, in spite of, you know, global warming and ice caps melting and, you know, lava flowing in Hawaii and tsunamis and earthquakes, God's more powerful than all of that, my friends. He will reduce it down to the very elements and recreate it brand new without any brokenness, without any sin, without any curse. God will one day recreate. He's that powerful. I notice this. John says, and there will be no more sea. Now, it's fascinating because I always wonder why. We're not in oceans, you know what I mean? Nobody's going to surf anymore or, you know, no boats. I don't really know. But when you think about it, John wrote from an island, I'll show you some pictures in a bit, called Patmos. He was exiled there to an island. And in the Hebrew culture, and and this is John, uh, there is a fear of water. The Hebrews were not sailors. They were not the Phoenicians. They were not the Egyptians. They were not the Aegeans. They did not go out and sail in boats. They just didn't do that. The Romans did it. The Hebrews didn't do it. They feared the water. They feared the depths of the water. They feared the chaos of the water. There's a word in Hebrew called tahom, which is this deep, tumultuous fear of water. Uh, The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, what? And the storms come up and there's this fear. Uh, Kevin and I were on a boat leaving Patmos, coming back uh, to Turkey, and uh, there was a storm. And we were rocking back and forth. And and so I, you know, I get to tell my kids, I was in a storm in the Aegean Sea on a boat. Not quite like Paul, because his fell apart. Mine didn't. Um, But, you know, it's like when the storm comes up, that panicked them. John says, there will be no more sea. There will be no more separation. There will be no more fear. There will be no more death. All things will be made new. The second bookend, let's take a look at this. Bookend number two, God's providing light. Genesis 1.5 says, God called the light day and the darkness night. As you open Genesis, you see an order of creation. You see six days of powerful creation everything being good, ultimately mankind being very good, and then the seventh day resting, creating a Sabbath day, a ceasing day. God stopped. Everything was created. But what's fascinating is, as you look at the timetable, God creates light and dark, separates them before he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And we go, well, what kind of light are we talking about here? Because we know we live in artificial light, uh, but 
we also live in natural light. I was out there greeting people and the sun was beaming and I was sweating and I'm like, wow, I like this. This is great. I love the light. I love what I get with my vitamin D. It's great, right? Where did that come from? Well, the Bible describes that God himself is light and God himself provided that light, which is not surprising then when you see the end the last book in the end of it with God's providing light in revelation this is what it says there will be no more night there he's talking about heaven John is describing the new created earth where everything is going to be perfect no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them we will be in the presence of God and his light will permeate everything we won't need lamps we won't need lights we won't need dimmer switches we won't need anything like that There'll be no more fear. There'll be no more separation, dark light. It will just be the light of God. And one day we will walk and live in that light. That's one of the analogies that the Bible talks about, walking in the light. We will walk in God's presence and it will be surrounding us and it will be lit up, my friends. The next bookmark, uh, bookend, Bible bookend number three, sin's painful punishment. Well, as we continue on in the story, of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we get to verses 15, 16, and 17 of Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So far, he's only created Adam at this point, not Eve. So the Lord God placed Adam, the man, in the garden to watch, to tend, to manage it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure to die. Now, Genesis describes that there are many trees. There's a lot of fruit. There's two in particular, one called the tree of life, that if you eat of that fruit, you live forever. The theologians wonder if you had to keep eating it, that it would extend your life, or one bite would extend it forever. Uh, but at least that was something they could have done. They decided not to eat of that one. In fact, they ate of the knowledge of good and evil tree. This is where you will lose your uh, you know, just this beautiful innocence, and now you will know morality. You will know good and bad. They were deceived, of course. They sinned, of course. But there was a moment in all creation when everything was perfect. There was, there was no moral decay. There was no curse. And they chose to walk toward that tree. And you read the story. They ate of that fruit. And in that day, they died. They separated from God spiritually which led then to physical death, which the Bible says is the second of three possible deaths for us, the last one being eternal death, eternal separation from God. Well, what does Genesis say? Painful punishment. What does Revelation say? The pain's gone. I love this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain all these things are gone forever. Give me a show of hands if in the last couple weeks you've had any tears, any sorrow, any crying, any pain. Anybody? Absolutely. That's the world we live in today. We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that's messed up. It's our fault. And I'm not just talking about the stuff we do today to damage the world, which is, you know, huge and horrendous. But from a very moral standpoint, the earth itself is cursed. We are cursed. Our bodies are cursed. Sin runs rampant. And because of sin, there's pain and there's suffering and there's sorrow. Jesus himself said in John 10.10 that the thief, the enemy of our soul, Satan, comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. And he does it, my friends. All you have to do is look around. 
He is so good at stealing and killing and destroying. See, God brings life and order when he speaks and moves, when Jesus shows up. Satan brings chaos and disorder and decay. We followed that path and sin brought this destruction. But, you know, he's going to wipe it all away and one day there will be no more. Bookend number four. Satan's beginning and end. We begin to see the idea of Satan, the unveiling of all these people in the narrative of Scripture. And Satan appears as a serpent here. Uh, Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, that's an interesting one. And, you know, theologians believe there was an actual serpent, but that he was indwelt with Satan, that the uh, cherubim, and you can read about it in Isaiah and in and Ezekiel, but that Satan indwelt that and he tempted through that. Uh, one day he asked the woman, this is Eve, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? And in fact, if you go on or, you know, and she says, yeah, we can't eat or even touch it, which was not true. Uh, didn't say anything about touching it, but you know, if you touch it, then you're going to eat it. You can't eat it without touching it. All right. Um, so Satan is this deceiver. Satan is this liar. Satan is the accuser. In fact, the Old Testament has this picture of Satan that he goes before God and he accuses you before God. We see it in Job. We see it in the prophets that Satan just shows up and says, oh, God, can I tell you about Kelly? Can I tell you about his thoughts? Can I tell you about what he said to Tammy this week? Now, I have no idea. Tammy didn't call me, email me. I don't know. Maybe you were just a loving husband that you look. Okay, but the fact is, is that Satan accuses us. And it's Jesus Christ that stands there as a defense attorney saying, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty because I took all the guilt, okay? But Satan is a liar, he's a deceiver, and he's accuser. He has a beginning, but he also has an end. Look what Revelation says. In a very powerful passage in chapter 20, it says that the devil, Satan himself, who had deceived them, not just Adam and Eve, but this is at the end of this thousand-year reign of Christ and then this big war, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is what we think about sometimes when we think about hell, but it's this burning lake. Joining the beast and the false prophet, that's part of the Revelation story there. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's easy for us to think about God and Satan and somehow forget that Satan is a created being. God is the creator of everything. And what I mean by that, and the implication is that Satan is powerful, no question. Satan can indwell, Satan can deceive, Satan can destroy. Satan is the the ruler of this world in this season that God has allowed him to do that. And Satan is a master at doing all of that. He is a master at it. But he's not king. He's not God. And no matter what he's done, God can undo and God is more powerful. In the end, my friend, God wins, okay? There's not some big cosmic battle where it's like, is it God? You know, is it, is it, is it Satan? Is it the Warriors? Is it LeBron? Because he was the only one playing. Okay, if you watch the game, you know, I'm not telling you which one's Satan and God. Okay, you decide that yourself. I've already decided. Okay, predestined. I grew up in California. And so um, this is the truth, my friends there will be an end. And no matter what kind of pain, what kind of destruction, what path that you're living in that the enemy has blown up, he is not gonna win. 
He's going to lose and God is more powerful. And God will finally put an end to all evil and pain and suffering and the author of all that himself. Number five, Bible bookend number five, our struggle and our curse. I alluded to this already, Genesis 3.13, after Adam and Eve had sinned there, then God, you know, confronts them. The Lord God asked the woman, Eve, what have you done? She said, the serpent deceived me, which is kind of funny because if you read it before that, uh, God looks at the man, Adam, and says, what, you know, where are you? What's going on? It's like the woman you gave me. It's like, great, man, wonderful, wonderful job casting the blame somewhere else. But she does the same thing, right? And uh, she casts it towards Satan. And, and there's a reality of all of those. But the serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And again, the Bible tells us because our forefathers, Adam and Eve, are, are, you know, we are now sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We are now tainted with the sin that they committed. Uh, Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul says without any ambiguity, it's absolutely clear that you and I are born with a curse of sin. And, and that means that we are all going to die. We are all going to be separated from God from birth. And yet there is a hope that Jesus Christ, the second Adam he's called, has restored everything. But by just the fact that we are born, we are separated from God. We don't have to reach a certain age to sin. And anybody that's had a baby knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? Okay. We just come out of the womb a sinful person. David himself said this, surely I was sinful before I was born. And although we don't see that expressed out until we get older usually, the Bible says we're cursed and tainted with this. Well, what does the Bible say in Revelation? What is the bookend that wraps it all together? 22.3, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there and his servants will worship him. One day we will be in the presence of God. The Bible says that God can't have sin in his presence that no one on the earth can see God and live because we're sinful but in that day we won't have any sin because our final glorified bodies will be there we will be united with them we will be perfect without sin and we will be the created beings that God designed us to be in the image of God living in a perfect relationship with each other and with God himself and we will be there in the midst of God in this wonderful relationship and the curse is gone and the struggle is gone and we will just worship God last one last one oh almost last one sorry six God's dwelling presence, almost last one. Uh, go to six, sorry. We were there a second ago. There we go, God's dwelling presence. Genesis three twenty four. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. Um, you know, you wonder, we read the story, God kicked them out. God kicked them out of the garden. Why did he do that? Why did he expel them from the garden? Well, he did it for their own good so that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. That would be the worst forever. So death, as hard as it is to say this, death is a gift because it is a reminder that this world is temporary and that we will one day go on to be with God or, the Bible says, separated from God because of the choices that we make in this world in relationship to Jesus Christ. And so we're in that situation of God's presence. God had to banish us from his presence, but then God invites us with revelation. He invites us into his presence Revelation says this, and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. In other words, we're gonna be owned by him. We're, we're, gonna, be part, we're gonna be his children, his sons and daughters. We're gonna have his identity stamped upon us. 
the reality is, is that we will be able to see him face to face and look him in the eye. John says that, you know, we don't know yet. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But when we get there, we will see him face to face and we will be like him. That is the hope that you and I have. Finally, now, number seven is this. Bible book in number seven, God's ultimate provision. God placed that flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God had to prevent us from going back into that perfect place. I can't imagine the broken heart of God that created everything good, that created everything perfect with a plan and a purpose, created mankind in his image to see his children rebel and to have to make the tough choice, the loving choice to remove us from that place, that perfect creation to see it destroyed because of our sinfulness. And in his provision, he removed us from that and he protected that. But one day, the Bible says in Revelation at the very end of the book, that we will wash our robes, that we will be clean. The Bible describes that as his purification. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city. There's not going to be a garden. It's going to be a city. And eat the fruit from the tree of life. In fact, the Bible describes this beautiful picture of this stream flowing down the center of the city, coming from the temple of God. And these trees growing on either side of this river, providing the nourishment, providing the healing, providing the hope for all of us. And we will live forever in the presence of God once again, brought back to unity. You and I live between the bookends. And uh, that's difficult. That's painful, right? We lose. We suffer. We struggle. We decay. We die. In the middle of all that, sin runs rampant. We have good seasons, absolutely. But I'm looking around. I know. I know you're you're in a tough season. You've lost a loved one. You're losing a loved one. Some of you are losing just the provision. Some of you are losing a marriage. Some of you are losing just the hope. Uh, Some things are broken and they're not going to get fixed. And you hope and pray and every day and it's not going to happen. And you have to hold on to the fact that one day it will be made right. When you think about this, I think about John. John wrote the book of Revelation. Now, God wrote it. Jesus, you know, came up and showed up on the Isle of Patmos. Isle of Patmos is an interesting place. Uh, It's a place of punishment. And it's a place that John was exiled to because of his faith in Jesus. In fact, look at these words. As he starts the book of Revelation, John says this in verse nine. I, John, who is John? John is the disciple the beloved disciple. There was Peter, James, and John, the earliest of the disciples. He was also a disciple of John the Baptist beforehand. So he's a quick believer in Jesus. John says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. John says, I am suffering for Jesus because I preach about Jesus. Because my life is a testimony about Jesus. Remember the words Jesus said to these disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses, right? You will tell everybody everywhere what you've seen and heard. That's what a witness is. You've seen and heard, just tell what you've seen and heard. That's it, you're a witness. You will be my witnesses. And those disciples went out and they made more disciples and more disciples and more disciples and they were witnesses 
of what they had seen and heard. And yet that came with tremendous cost. The Bible says there was tremendous suffering in the first 300 years of the church to the point of death and martyrdom. The word witness in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a word that is martyrus, which means just to be a witness, but that's not what it means anymore. The, the word now means to die for a cause. They were martyrs. One of the early church fathers said this, it was the blood of the martyrs, the witnesses, that became the seed of the church, that the church grew because people bled and died. And you read the horrific way these people suffered. Now, if you think about a little history, you read uh, the other three, you know, the three guys, Peter, James, and John. Uh, James and John, they suffered. Paul suffered. They suffered under Nero. Uh, Paul died, was beheaded, history tells us, under Emperor Nero, Caesar. Uh, quite insane, the fires, the whole thing, about 64 AD. Uh, we know that Peter died under the hand of Nero. James died earlier. They, they died horrific deaths. Peter died crucified upside down. Paul died beheading. Many of them were just completely ravaged by animals, uh, going again and again to all these old cities, these ancient places to see the theaters, to see the places where the lions ripped believers to shreds, the gladiator games, the people were thrown to the lions, literally thrown to the animals, the wild beasts, for the testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, A little bit later, John survives, and John is the pastor at Ephesus. He's pastor in the church of Ephesus, and uh, Domitian is the emperor. Now, this is Patmos. Let me show you a picture here. Looks kind of cool now. Um, it's about six miles by 10 miles and didn't have all these fancy little white Greek homes, you know, little Greek island homes. Uh, they got Greek salad down there. It's great. But somewhere on this island, there's a little monastery to it and a cave. They say, he did, you know, he received the vision. But somewhere on this island, suffering for Jesus Christ. Some say that it was an island of punishment, meaning he had to work in the mines and such, but John would have been incredibly old at that point. Um, Or it could have just been a place of just removing him because of his testimony in Ephesus was destroying everything. Ephesus is an important city. The emperor of that time, Domitian, actually had a temple built to himself in Ephesus. Um, By the time that John and these other disciples are coming up, they'd only not only worship all these other gods, they worship the emperor and they worship the Caesar, the emperor. And uh, here's a little diagram uh, of the Domitian temple. And so he built this just for himself, okay? And it's massive. This is uh, mostly gone. If you go to Ephesus, the city, uh, these Roman arches, it's built up high because there's a hillside here and this is the temple to the emperor the Domitian this is his own temple and everybody everywhere in Ephesus and surrounding areas they have to go there and they have to offer sacrifices to the emperor because the emperor is the god of the age now there's a statue here and they estimate that it's about 25 to 30 feet tall we don't know because we don't know how high the platform was that supported it I mean think about Statue of Liberty there's a huge platform um, the base But you can see the relative size, this next picture here, with the head and the arm, they found them. And they're in a museum there, and that's me and my head and my arm. And it's not as big as that one. This is Domitian. And if you were to go to Ephesus, where John pastored, if you were to walk the streets, if you were to do commerce, uh, you would have to go worship the emperor. And John said no. And history tells us that he was dropped in boiling oil, He didn't die. 
that God protected him. He was pulled out and he was exiled. Later, Domitian dies. John is released, we believe, and goes back to die in Ephesus. John knows all about suffering, my friends. John knows all about pain. John knows all about tears. John knows all about being a witness to the point of death. Even though he was the only one of the original disciples that didn't die as a martyr, he lived as a martyr and he suffered as a martyr. Bible bookends, let me give you just the recap on these. Here are all seven of them. God creates, God provides light, sin brings punishment, Satan is the cause of that. We followed him versus following God, but he will have an end. We struggle because of a curse. God's presence, though, shows up for us, and he has ultimately a provision for you and for me. Now, I just want to close with this thought. I don't know what your suffering is. I know some. One of our gals messaged me, Pastor Kevin, a few days ago, her husband's mother, car wreck, brain damage, within a couple days gone. Just like that. That's the world we live in. Some of you have relatives that just passed away unexpectedly. Husband, wife, son or daughter, mom, dad, or slowly passing away. Car wrecks, breakdowns. Things not working with our body, with our mind, right? Things just not being the way that we thought they would be. Brokenness and sin and suffering in our lives. We are filled with sorrow and pain. That's the world we live in. Because right now we live between the bookends, right? We live here because of what happened here. My friends, one day we will be here. We will be in the city where inside of that city God will dwell and we will walk with him. So I I love to read, like I said, But I make it a habit, if I ever do read a novel, which is rare, to never read the end. I never read the review. I don't want any spoilers. I took my boys to see Solo today. I thought it was great. I didn't read anything about it. I didn't want to know anything. I didn't want any spoilers, right? Last thing I wanted for somebody telling me about Sixth Sense before I go see the movie, right? Okay, I don't want to know that stuff. I want to just go into it. I don't want to read the last page, because then it kind of ruins the book, right? You know what? God encourages you to read the last page. In fact, he says this. Blessed are those who read these words. God wants you to read the last page. You know why? Because he wants you to know that there is hope. And there is a day coming when he will rule and reign. There will be no brokenness, no more sin, no more death, no more dying. And even though we live in the middle of it right now, you can read the last page and have hope. Let's pray. Father God, you know our hearts and you know our struggles. You know our suffering. You know our longings, our aches. And for so many people, there's just this desire for you to fix it, God. You to make it right, God. You to come in and intervene, God. And sometimes you do. But many times you just wait because the book's last few pages are not experienced yet. Oh, they're written. They're completed in your eyes. You're God. You're sovereign. You know the end. But we haven't experienced it yet. So give us hope. Give us encouragement. Father, in Jesus' name, remind us that we have hope because we have a Savior who went to the cross and died for us, who took the punishment from all, for all of our sin, from us on himself, so that you and I, those in this room, God, we could live in this world 
with a hope and a future. Father, if we're being accused by the enemy right now, if we're being slandered by the enemy, if we're being tempted by the enemy, if we're being beat down by the enemy, if we are the enemy, if we are the one fighting, if we are the one struggling and wrestling, if we're the victim of the enemy, I pray, God, we would remember that the bookend is there and we just have to wait to get there. So with all hope, God, we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. You would come. The last words are this, the spirit and the bride, that's us, say, come, Lord Jesus, come soon, amen, amen.